Hello, I'm Dr. Rebecca Sun, Director of the Peregrine Centre. As we begin this episode of the Peregrine Rural Mental Health Podcast, please join me in stopping to consider the land beneath your feet, wherever you might be listening from today. Let's take a moment together to acknowledge the traditional owners of that land. We pay our deepest respects to the elders of the past, those of the present, and the emerging elders of tomorrow. The Peregrine Rural Mental Health Podcast is brought to you as part of our Rural Mental Health Partnership with New South Wales Health. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Peregrine Rural Mental Health Podcast. My name is Caitlin Miller. I am a research associate and clinical psychologist working for the Rural Mental Health Partnership at the Peregrine Centre. Today we are talking about leadership for team leaders in mental health. I'm joined today by two guests, Dr Jenny Brown and Ken Morgan. Thanks so much for making time to be here today. Jenny, would you be able to tell us a little bit about who you are and your experience in this area? Well, I really love the topic on leadership in mental health. I am a social worker, family therapist, have also had leadership experience over many years in leading a clinical practice and have been a consultant and supervisor for mental health teams and leaders in mental health teams. So my my particular area of interest is families and parenting and family systems, and my PhD has focused on that area. I've also been involved for over 18 years with the Family Systems Institute in Sydney, which is how I know our co-guest here, Ken Morgan, and that is a training institute using Murray Bowen's theory of family systems, and it trains not just clinicians, but people who are keen to apply these ideas in organizations as well. Wow. Thank you so much. A very impressive CV, and uh, we are very happy to have you today. I'm really looking forward to hearing your opinions on on everything that we're talking about. really interesting to be part of it today. should be a great conversation. I am hopeful that it will be. Ken, would you be able to introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit about your background? Thanks, Caitlin. I spend most of my time working as a leadership coach and consultant. Um, I'm a graduate of the Family Systems Institute and I currently chair the board. My background is in human resources management, so um, I studied that and worked in the corporate world as a human resources manager before going up by myself. Fantastic. All right. So let's crack into it. Um, so to start with, how do ideas about family systems apply to mental health teams? Well, I'll jump in on that and Ken, you can follow because I'll start with the mental health teams and leave Ken to talk about teams and family systems. I mean, mental health teams are particularly unique in that the service delivery is with people who are anxious um, because of the challenges that they're facing. And family systems theory has a lot to say about not individual anxiety, but how anxiety flows back and forth between the people that are our clients and team members. So I would say right up front that family systems theory has a lot of helpful stuff to say about the transmission of systems anxiety in between people, mm. which is especially relevant in dealing with people who are very anxious and often in crisis. Thank you. Ken, did you have anything that you wanted to add? 
Yeah, family systems is helpful because it's a study of the way humans operate. And mental health care teams are collections of humans who serve humans. And so if we can get clear on how humans act predictably, it enables us to be thoughtful about how we conduct ourselves, especially when we're dealing with people who are highly anxious or are in extreme situations. Okay, and so what you're saying is that the principles that family systems therapy has in relation to families can also be applied for mental health teams, both in relation to team members, but also their interactions with clients or patients. Yeah, humans behave kind of predictably across a range of contexts. It's really interesting you mentioned that, Caitlin, because Dr. Murray Bowen, who developed this particular version of systems theory, from his research over many years, he was doing a big research project with families who were all admitted to a research and treatment unit with a young adult member with serious psychosis. And Mm -hmm. quite early in his research, he noticed that the same patterns he was witnessing and documenting in observing the families with a highly symptomatic member, he could see them replicated in team meetings. How interesting. And with anxious people sitting around the table and how are we going to handle this family? Mm. And so what, even though the seriousness of the symptoms was um, very different in families to what was going on in teams, this is a theory that applies right across the continuum from serious symptoms just to moderate levels of regular anxiety, There, are the, as Ken has said. There are the same predictable patterns in response to human stress and tension that come out in relationships. And so would it be accurate to say that something that we might call you know, parallel process might actually be um, systems thinking in place and systems in action? Yes, indeed. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. That's, uh, I think, a really helpful start to sort of understand how we can apply fist. Uh, family systems thinking to other areas of life and and other areas of practice. Okay, so something that we hear about often is people who are early in their career taking up team leadership positions in mental health uh, in rural or regional areas because there aren't actually other people that are available to fill that role. They might be feeling pretty anxious, understandably, and their team might be nervous as well. What can team leaders do to manage an anxious team and, and to manage their own anxieties as well in this? I might jump on that one. It's, it's difficult because the role changes and the focus changes. And as a clinician, your, your focus initially is on your clients. And when you become a team leader, your job shifts to your team members and it's a difficult shift to make. So Getting clear on your role is one of the most important things you can do. So Family Systems talks about differentiating a self, and part of that is becoming clear in your own mind and then becoming clear with your team about what your role is and about what your commitments are. So getting clear on your role is one of the most important things you can do, and it's it requires a good degree of adjustment. So one of the most helpful things you can do is get a bit of coaching, So someone to just walk with you and help you think clearly about what is and isn't your job and how you manage yourself in the vicissitudes of leading a team that's 
sometimes going to be an anxious system. Yeah, I agree with what Ken's saying. And I can also say that I've been on the other end of Ken being my coach. When I was um, looking at succession planning for my leadership role at the Institute and planning for that and how to step aside and how to plan for that, I cannot state more strongly how hard that would have been to just work that through in my own head. Any change, whether it's in a family or a team, is a time of increased stress and turbulence. Equilibrium or predictable patterns are upset. And having someone outside the system just to ask me questions, get me thinking, get me to be clear, get me to focus, to see what I'm not paying attention to is incredibly valuable a really useful investment, mm. especially for, for new leaders and especially, as you say, Caitlin, if one feels thrown in the deep end somewhat, not a lot of experience and also, as Ken was talking about, this transition from relating to peers to being in a position where peers become accountable in terms of their performance, that's a really tricky, anxious transition. And the only other thing I'd like to add um, there is just the value of not trying too hard. Mm -hmm. Just the one of the worst things we can do when we're anxious and yet it's predictable we do it is try too hard to be to meet the perceived expectations of others. That's a relational phenomena. It's a projection. We make assumptions. We mind read. We try to guess what's expected of us. And we start becoming more of a pretend self, as Bowen called it, a pseudo-self, rather than just being real and honest about Here's what I bring to this role. Here's who I am. Here's what I'm committed to working on and how I'm going to fulfill my responsibilities and asking good questions of the peers. How are you thinking about this transition in our relationship? Here's how mm -hmm. I'm thinking about it. Tell me how you view this transition and let's keep the relationship open and transparent. Right. So it sounds like there's a, a few things that I've taken from that. Maybe the first is to be clear around your responsibilities in, in the change of role because it, it's a different job managing a team compared to doing client work. And then maybe the second is around uh, getting someone who's not in the system to be able to provide a perspective that you might not be able to see because you're too close to things. And then being really genuine with your team and uh, almost bringing the relationship change and putting that on the table and talking about that in a really authentic way and naming that there has been a change in relationship potentially for some people. Yeah. Yes. Fantastic. Well summarized. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, and so I think you sort of alluded to this a little bit, Jenny, in, in your last answer around what we might do when we feel really anxious. Um, but something that seems to be spoken about quite a lot in the family system space is the idea of over-functioning. Can you help us understand what that means and how it might play out in a mental health team for team leaders? Yeah, well, I'm an expert at over-functioning, so it's good <laughs> you start with me because my family of origin primed me to be so sensitive to distress in others 
that I would make assumptions, mind read, and jump in to do whatever I thought I could do to relieve other people's distress, especially my mother, who I was particularly attuned to and aligned to, which is an example of my primary triangle, if people want to read up more on family systems theory. Um, the one thing I'd say about overfunctioning, first of all, a simple definition. It's when we are thinking, feeling, and or behaving on behalf of another rather than on behalf of ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's a definition I've taken from Harriet Lerner's writing in her great book, Dance Books, Dance of Anger, etc. So am I thinking, feeling, or behaving on behalf of another and um, rather than representing myself and letting the other person be their own separate self in the relationship? Hmm. And um, without wanting to go into a whole big spiel on this, I would say that it's important to appreciate that these concepts and systems theory are about emotional process or relational sensitivities. They're not individual descriptions. So while I'm primed for overfunctioning in some areas, it's really, it develops in relationships with other people. So you can't have an overfunctioner without a willing underfunctioner. Mm -hmm. We do the dance together. It's about a dance, a pattern of reaction and counter-reaction together. Mm. And it's an interesting one because if ever we're over-functioning and people like me who are over-functioning helpers by nature, and I've spent years working to reduce that pattern, so I give people space to be the best they can be and not get in their way. I'll be working on it through all my life, I know. But to appreciate that if we're over-functioning in one area, we will be under-functioning somewhere else. We've only got so much functioning energy to go around, and something that I see happening in I've seen it in my own realm and in the teams that I've been in contact with is a leader who overfunctions in caretaking and rescuing team members may be underfunctioning in important administrative tasks mm. that are, for example, a leader who hadn't put in the correct data to guarantee ongoing funding, and yet they were deeply loved by their team. And it put their team's future into serious vulnerability when that was uncovered, that statistics hadn't been done. So it's one of the challenges of life, isn't it, to not just function in the areas that come naturally to us and make us feel good and not so anxious when we're being helpful to others. It's doing the hard stuff as well. Mm. So would it be accurate to say that overfunctioning is uh, like an anxiety management technique that doesn't actually end us up very well. Indeed it is, and uh, so is underfunctioning. Mm. And and overfun remember that we can do both. So for example, I can overfunction through kind of thinking and making assumptions on behalf of others and I can underfunction by accommodating to others under and not being brave enough to have good conversations with them. 
Mm. So it, it goes, there's a mixture in there, but you're right, absolutely spot on, Caitlin, that each of those accommodations is a way of protecting myself from feeling stressed or anxious about mm. upsetting another person or about my uh, covering over my own insecurities by being overly helpful in a certain area. So it is all driven by just the natural anxieties, not clinical diagnostic anxieties, the natural stresses and sensitivities of being human. And I really like how you say that the problems are between relationships uh, rather than you know, just one person over-functioning, you know, it's a dynamic, it's a relational pattern that evolves over time. The one thing I'd want to add to that is that these patterns, we repeat them because they work in the short term. Mm. So when we get in and take responsibility for things for which we're not really responsible, it feels like it works. It feels like the problem is solved. And so it's very attractive because it's in the short term, it fixes the problem in inverted commas. And we only get the knock-on effect of it often in the medium to longer term. So you don't do your stats. That doesn't cause any problems for you in the first week or two. It's at the end of the quarter when you really needed to have those stats done that the ship comes in. Yeah. So that sort of, it makes it hard to identify where we're stepping outside of the boundaries of our role because the, the feedback loop is often quite delayed. Right, whereas the anxiety is relieved almost immediately. Correct. Yes, okay, yeah. okay. I can see how this might be a tricky pattern to notice and then to figure out how to, how to change or how to modify. It's not too different to taking drugs. <laughs> sure, okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, um, and so, so I think the next question is, I think, quite related, which is that, when I think of team leaders, I think a common way to think about them is as problem solvers. You know, you go to your team leader when you can't figure out a solution to a problem that you have and they, you know, might help relieve your anxiety and they might help you identify some solutions. You might do some problem solving together. Is this actually a good way to think about your role if you're a leader in mental health? I would say it's not, not a good way to understand your role as sort of problem solver in chief. I learned this lesson when I was in the corporate world as a human resources manager and people would show up at my office with a problem and I would solve the problem for them or I would take responsibility and they would walk out feeling relieved and feeling very happy and I'd have a problem to solve. And they would tell their friends that Ken's great, you know, he really helped me with this problem. And at the end of the day, I would just have this collection of other people's problems for which I'd taken responsibility. So somebody introduced me to the idea of not being the keeper of the monkeys. So when someone comes to you with a problem, imagine it as a monkey on their back and you can talk to them about their monkey and help them think through what they're going to do to manage their monkey. But at the end of the day, they need to take their monkey with them when they leave your office. I love that. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. And so as a leader, um, being a resource and a coach to your staff is very helpful, but helping them to think through how do they take responsibility for the things for which they're responsible and how do they take agency 
in resolving problems. It actually slowly and over time builds their capacity to the point where when they're confronted with a problem, they start to learn the questions to ask themselves even without you present. Uh, so they've sort of internalized a version of you who can coach them through it without you actually being there. <laughs> Hopefully I'm not living in their head because that would be weird. <laughs> but what I'm hoping to do is build their capacity to take agency for themselves mm. rather than need to lean on other external resources that they don't necessarily need to lean on. Mm. Yep. Okay. Jenny, do you have anything? Can I throw in a practical tip there in terms of what that looks like in building agency? One of the central clinical skills in bone family systems theory is tracking emotional process or relationship back and forth. And that is as valuable in helping a team member work through their problem as it is an anxious client, a parent, a um, a couple in a couple session, they bring a problem and you ask for, give me a recent example of how you've been addressing that problem. Just something that's fresh in your mind and ask, how did it all get started? Who's, how did you respond? How did they respond? What were, what were you thinking when they responded that way? What were you feeling? What came out up next? How did that respond to? How did, did the other person respond and react to that? Where did it all end up? And essentially, you're doing that in quite a bit of detail, just a short interaction, not the problem over the last month, the, an example of the problem within an at no more than an hour period of interaction, ideally even half an hour. And then to be able to ask the other person, as you step back and look at that back and forth between you and the other person or the client or that stakeholder or that referrer or that other agency, what do you think was helpful and constructive and what wasn't? And then you just add more questions to helping the person coming to you to reflect on What's within my realm of agency, that important word that Ken was using, what's in my realm of self-efficacy, agency, to adjust to contribute to a better outcome that doesn't require me having to change the other person which or blame the other person or diagnose the other person. So that's the core. That's the, the clinical work and that's the leadership work. And that's, um, and it reveals the, all the patterns when you get that interaction. It reveals the over under functioning. It reveals the triangling. And so it's so valuable and it keeps you neutral. You're not taking sides. You don't have to validate the person coming to you about poor them being treated so badly, etc. So it's just the most valuable skill that I hope um, gets people thinking about the value of this way of operating in leadership and indeed clinically as well. Mm. Thank you. I think that's uh, such a valuable skill to be able to, you know, uh, step outside the anxiety for a moment and actually look at what's happening moment to moment in your interactions and, you know, what might be keeping things going in that way and what you can change and what you can take ownership over. So it's, it's reframing the problems so that they have some agency, know what they can do about it. 
let's say I manage a team that works with a lot of high-risk clients, uh, maybe high suicide risk, high medical risk, high risk of harm to others. What are some of the common ways that a team system will react to high levels of risk and what would you recommend I do to manage this system? Uh, One of the things that comes up a lot in working with mental health professionals is the issue of suicide. And there's a sort of a narrative running around the sector of of suicide should, you know, we're here to prevent it. it. It's an unacceptable outcome. Of course it is. And like the road toll, it's unacceptable that people die on the road, but we're not going to get to zero tomorrow. And so having agency-wide a realistic understanding of what is likely to happen and then being able to think through if the if the predictable bad outcome happens, what are some of the, the processes we could have in place ready to roll when it does happen? Um, I think it's a really helpful thing. So if you're working in a high-stress environment, understanding what are some of the, the predictable challenges that you're going to be up against and then having systems in place to deal with them when they arise is really helpful rather than scrambling um, when it happens. So sort of uh, clearly articulating uh, what is unknown and bringing it into the known around what what does happen if this really awful event occurs. Yeah, and what are, what are the processes that we kick into place so that people feel, have a sense of this is almost like it's, it's one of those sooner or laters it's going to happen to you. And it helps to enable people to not be quite so acute in their anxiety about it. This is awful and it's something that happens to clinicians. Jenny, do you have any recommendations on managing a team that is quite reactive to high levels of risk? Well, I think I, I really like what Ken has said and part of what I draw out of that is to stay with the objective facts of the particular risk situation watch out for anxious what-ifs that can amplify risk and our responses to exaggerated risk can actually inflame the risk. Hmm. What do you mean by that? That if we're really fearful about somebody's safety, we can move into overprotection, overprescribing, overfencing them in, overmonitoring, all of which can de-self the at-risk person, have them much more sensitive to being monitored and reacted to, which can indeed increase the risk Mm. that um, they can't self-regulate when they feel um, suicidal or whatever else the risk might be in terms of harming others and all of those things that are terrible outcomes and really disturbing parts of the realities of of mental health, but being careful not to amplify the risk through an over-anxious response. Under under responsibility and over-responsibility can make things worse. Mm. Being able to talk to people, but talk to people who are at risk and give them a voice rather than move into just wanting to protect them in some way mm. and I think there's plenty of research isn't there out there now on 
how when family members can talk to the person who has expressed suicidality or made a, a gesture in that direction, that if they use the word suicide and can be able to say, I'm really fearful of you suiciding and killing yourself. I um, I just want to let you know how I feel about that, that when people can use the words and talk directly so that they're treating the person who's struggling as a person, not a patient, it can re- lower the risk. I think that's really helpful. I, I think it's really understandable when people feel very anxious around risk. You know, as you say, it's Absolutely. a really, it's a normal reaction. Uh, but I think we also need to be aware of how, how our actions are contributing and, and how they're impacting that risk profile as well. But gosh, it's hard in mental health, medical, yeah. legal challenges for the psychiatrists in particular who um, really carry a lot of the concerns about being held responsible for self-harm and suicide it's it's a fraught difficult area yeah absolutely and an area where you know I think it's really valuable to get that outside perspective on or supervision or coaching whatever it is for you so that you can have some someone else to give an opinion of what's going on too yes okay so so moving on we know that Over the last few years in particular, there's been a lot of pressure and stress for mental health practitioners. If I had just started as a manager in mental health and I'm working with a team that's pretty tired, they've got a high turnover rate, uh, maybe they have a lot of compassion fatigue, what would be your advice on managing this? One of the most helpful things you can do is accept that this is the reality Mm. and that it's probably taken a while for the team to get like this. And so your chances of pulling the team out of that quickly are really low. So except it's an anxious team. It's got a whole bunch of challenges. They've got a whole bunch of compassion fatigue. That is the reality. Mm. (sighs) Take the deep breath and then start thinking about what kind of presence do I want to maintain with these people? The most helpful thing you can do is to be a calm, thoughtful presence with those people while they try and work through what it is that they're facing. Most of the issues around compassion fatigue and around the stress of the role can't be resolved directly by the manager, but you can be a very useful resource by being present and by being calm, by being curious, by being thoughtful. So the most important thing you do is manage your own presence with the team. Showing up, being in good contact with your team members. So constantly surprises me how many clinicians report they don't have regular positional supervision with their team leader. And I would advocate make appointments to meet one-on-one with every one of your team and just talk through the job. It is in and of itself, uh, Edwin Friedman says, a therapeutic modality to just be present. Mm. Yeah, that's really helpfully said, Ken. I won't add anything to that except the reminder not to get caught in trying to fix. That You just are connected without trying to go for any quick fixes. Mm. 
Uh, and watch out also for overreacting to people's burnout and symptoms and beginning to treat them as a patient, where then the endless stress leave seems to go on forever, just treating people as human beings who can work through their challenges and also stay responsible for thinking about the job they've signed up to do and what do I need to do to stay on task. Mm, Absolutely. Thank you both. I think uh, that's some really helpful advice on what to do when you're entering a team that that looks like this and, and that can feel really Uh, a little bit hopeless and and a little bit like you're not sure where to go from here. There are a lot of different situations that leaders might be asked to address. How can new leaders know when to be firm with their employees or or their staff or when to be more flexible in their approach? How do you know when to do what and, and how to change your style depending on what's happening? This is yours, Ken. (laughs) (laughs) Ken's writing a book on this. Yeah. Very soon to be published. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, fantastic. If you want to hear my mantra, it is be clear. So if you can understand very clearly what is within a person's job for them to be able to choose and what's within your job to control and oversee and just get really clear. If a person is operating within the scope of their role and there's plenty of opportunity to choose different ways, as long as it's within the scope of their role and they're acting consistent with the systems and processes of the organisation, let them figure it out. Okay, so And that's a little tricky when we're in quality-assured environments like um, mental health services where there's, you know, there, there are standards that we have to adhere to. But even within those, if it's within the scope of the judgment of their role, even if it's not your preference, let them have at it. (laughs) But when it stops being a question of preference, it starts being a question of policy, then you need to jump in. Then you need to basically say, no, no, this is what's within the scope of your job and you're stepping outside of that, so I just need to pull you back here. So the clearer that we can be about what scope of judgment the actual individual has and where that's outside of their scope of judgment and we need to exercise a bit of control, the clearer the we can be, the easier it is to figure out what to do. And how would you approach that kind of situation if you did have to pull someone back in uh, who was maybe going outside of their scope of, of their role? First thing is straight away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as soon as you see a person stepping outside of what you expect them to do, um, you need to address it straight away because if they're aware that you're aware of it and not touching it, then that is tacit approval. Mm. So take the deep breath and address it. Address it Address it directly and calmly. Um, if, if we are at all convey frustration or anger or annoyance, it just upsets the clear thinking of the person that we're working with. So we able to simply say, hey, have you got a minute? Just need a quick chat. Just say, I noticed this. Just want to remind you that this is the limit of where your judgment gets up to. That's not okay. Can I ask you to please? And most people, if you're kind and respectful with them, will sort of go, oh, sorry, whatever. They'll pull back, end of issue. Mm-hmm. Um, 
if it continues, you're just going to need to be relentless. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But okay. As soon as you as soon as you cave in and let it happen because you go, oh, have it your way, um, you're surrendering your own responsibilities as a leader. Hmm. And what about situations where there's staff conflict or situations where employees' styles of working uh, conflict with each other or don't work very well together? That, that is inevitable. Like it would be lovely to have a team where everybody just completely sort of works so complementarily and, and everything's great, but that's not reality. And so, yes, some people will get under your fingernails a little bit, and sometimes it's a case of saying you're going to need to manage your own discomfort on that. If their behaviour is within the realms of what is acceptable within the policy and procedure of the organisation, then you're just going to need to learn to manage it. One of the primary impulses for leaders is as soon as there's a bit of friction between a couple of people in the team is to jump in and mediate it. And I would argue that in the first point, that's probably being over-responsible. Staying in thoughtful contact with the combatants and helping them think through how they can take up their role and responsibility for maintaining the good functioning of the team as far as it lies with them is far more helpful. And you'd be surprised how often, if you treat people like responsible adults, they behave like responsible adults. It's amazing. Now, sometimes you will need to eventually intervene, but mm. my sense is our impulse to intervene is usually a bit premature. Okay. Jenny, did you have anything to add to that one? I think um, just adding another incredibly valuable part of Murray Bowen's theory, which is the nature of relationship triangles, where the problems that belong between two people escape to third parties and then spread all over the place. And that's the, the triangling process. Another thing that we all do, it's not always bad, but it does prevent a difficult, something that two people are working out together. As soon as we move in to either mediate, as Ken said, and do their work for them, we're in a triangle, we're diluting their space as two people to sort it out together, or we take sides, and that's so often what happens with a leader. They have one of their team come to them and complain about this other person, and that is an invitation to triangle. And to just watch that, and it fits with what we were talking about earlier, about helping the person see how they're dealing with it rather than jumping in to take their side, align with them, affirm how terrible it is for them, say, I will try and sort it out with the other person. And it triangles, which our FSI conference is focusing on next week, a whole two days on triangles. Um, they are everywhere. And when you can start to be the invitation to take sides or to do the work that belongs in another relationship. It's so useful as a leader to start to figure that out. And I imagine that there would be plenty of invitations uh, to be invited into a triangle as a leader because as far as I understand, they often occur when a relationship is under stress and it's trying to stabilise itself in some way. Mm. 
The one thing I'd add is as a leader, it's really important to be clear on your expectations. So if the person comes to you having a complaint about someone else and you put your coaching hat on and help them think through what they're going to do about it, then to be clear about saying, you know, I just want to remind you, I expect you to conduct yourself like this. So just be clear about what you expect of the other person. And ask them what they think of that. What are your thoughts on my expectation? Would you frame it differently? So it's that nice back and forth. Here are my thoughts. What are your thoughts? Mm, Okay. I like that. I think that uh, gives people some agency, I think, which is what we've talked a lot about today uh, in the discussion and, and to not feel like it's punitive necessarily. Some of your listeners will have been trained in family therapy, one of the most influential theories in Australia. The one I was first trained in is Milan Systemic, and then you've got the post-Milan versions where a central tenet is neutrality and how to stay neutral. And I would say I've learned through a Bowen theory approach that the best way to stay helpfully neutral and that doesn't mean neutral in that you have no opinions or beliefs or values. It means neutral in that you don't take sides in people's conflict. Is by asking them how are they managing that conflict. Just that opening question. Just describe to me what you're currently doing in response to the conflict that's arisen. Just a great way to have a, a useful conversation without jumping in to validate one side. Yes, I think that's a really helpful takeaway. Thank you, Jenny. Um, okay, so so people often talk about uh, feeling uncomfortable giving feedback around underperformance. Uh, what are some things that might be useful to consider in these situations? I think we've touched on it briefly, but it might be worthwhile expanding on it a little bit. As a coach, I come across this all the time with people sort of saying, I feel uncomfortable giving the feedback. And I would say discomfort is the price of admission to leadership. So it's, yes, it's uncomfortable. Um, and this is your job. Being thoughtful and responsible about how you give that feedback is important. But accept that it's going to be uncomfortable and move towards it. One thing I'd I'd put is that if you have regular supervision with people so that as their boss, you sit down with them on a regular basis and just talk about how they're doing, they'll be, they'll A, have a pretty good idea of, of what you think about how they're doing and B, that you'll have enough of a, a bit of a relationship that there'll be some currency to contain what might be a bit of disc- discomfort in the feedback. Like nobody likes hearing that their performance is less than expected or outside of what's acceptable. But if you've established a good trustworthy or trusting relationship with the person, there's usually enough credit in the bank to be able to cover that sense of discomfort. If you never talk to them or you never give them feedback and the only feedback they get is negative and it's out of the blue, it feels disproportionate. Yep, I can I can certainly understand how it might come across that way if you don't have regular meetings or don't have regular catch-ups with someone and then suddenly you're providing feedback. Yeah, it might feel a little bit out of the blue and a bit shocking. 
The other piece to that, which fits with Ken's emphasis on keeping contact and being present, is having non-intense contact regularly so that the team isn't always too serious, that a leader learns to um, come out of their office regularly into the tea room, find out what people did on the weekend, know a little bit about what's going on in their life, what TV shows they're enjoying, not overdoing it, but just treating each other as humans. And probably the people that a leader finds most difficult but they get most anxious in the presence of they're the ones where the investment in non-intense small talk will be most valuable. Okay, and so to finish up, what advice would you have for someone who's just entered a leadership role on developing their identity as a leader? Oh, I I think it's a great wrap-up question because it's pulling together a lot of the conversation in Be a self. Don't try to be who you think other people expect you to be or what's going to win approval. All of that that sensitivity to who who am I supposed to be in this leadership role really derails people from being able to stick with just bringing their best self, which is not going to be perfect and has a lot to learn and that's all the way through life in all of our roles and that's okay and just staying within oneself and I'll start with that and hand over to Ken. Yeah you got me thinking Jenny about this idea of imposter syndrome and I hear it a lot. I hear it particularly with younger women who get promoted into leadership roles. And I think I've got to the point of going, yeah, okay, you're going to feel that it's inevitable, everybody does, and just do your job anyhow. I think um, I just want to say on the gender distinction, Ken, I I think that women are perhaps more open about their experience of that and men experience the same insecurities but with the scripts, the gender scripts, are less likely to disclose that and cover it up with other unhelpful, anxious behaviours. Yeah. <laughs> but it's there, um, isn't it, for all of I us? I think it is. And I think as a bloke, um, when we feel that sort of sense of insecurity about, I'm not sure I'm up for this, the way we compensate is probably push over it a little more. It's a little more that more more aggressive kind of way of dealing with it. But either way, except that you're probably going to feel a bit insecure and you and your role, you're not going to be quite certain what you're going to do. And just that is the reality and do your job anyhow. So pull your position description out, have a good look at it, and then get thoughtful about how am I going to execute this for which I'm responsible for. Yeah, staying objective and factual. Yeah, and acknowledge that you're going to have a sense of feeling awkward as you step into a new gig. Everybody does. You, you know, learning theory tells us that you can't really learn until you sort of feel the awkwardness of not being able to do something. That's what drives our learning. Take it as a learning experience um, and do your job anyhow. Yeah. And in terms of being real about self, I just want to qualify that I'm not meaning just 
vent and, and overspill emotions. I feel so inadequate for this where you're inviting everyone to reassure you. That is not going to be helpful. By being real, I mean being real in an objective way. I haven't had a lot of experience of this role, but I'm looking forward to learning this, this, and this. I'm glad of this support that is being offered to me, and um, this is what I'm committed to fulfilling in the role. That's what I mean by being real, not by just spilling over all our insecurity. Our insecurities will be there and they require our self-regulation to prevent them spilling over onto everybody. Well thank stated. Thank you so much. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for joining us and sharing your knowledge on this topic today. I know that I've learned a lot and I think our listeners will too. Uh, for our listeners, I'm going to ask Ken and Jenny to provide uh, some resources uh, as suggestions for if you're interested in this topic and want to dive into some more, and they will be available on our IT platform, which you can access through our website. Thanks so much for joining us, Ken and Jenny. It's been a pleasure, Caitlin. You're welcome. I hope you found today's episode helpful. You'll find specially selected resources on this topic on our digital learning platform. To join the platform for free or to suggest questions or topics for further episodes, please visit our website, theperegrinecentre.com.au.